Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I am Matthew Galt. Jason Fields is taking a powder. Ukraine's counteroffensive is well underway. One of the best places to get stories and reporting about what's happening is counteroffensive.news, a substack run by former U.S. Army medic and former NPR investigative journalist Tim Mack. He's here with us today to talk about the war, the counteroffensive, and the charms of Ukraine. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And I, I'm wowed by the charms of Matthew Galt as well here with that with that generous intro. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so I really, I, I heard you on another podcast and I started reading your stuff and I was really blown away by it. It reminds me of um, a lot of some of the best war correspondents that I remember from like Syria and from Iraq and from some of the, some some friends I've got. It's very uh, it's very people focused. And I don't read a whole lot of that from the major publications these days. Um, was that kind of, can you tell us the story about like how this yeah. thing got started and kind of what your goals and ambitions were and, and like what you set out to yeah. do? Well, look, we're just, we're, a, you know, a month and a half old, right? Um, but the the focus of counteroffensive.news has been to get away from the same kinds of journalism that other outlets and uh, are, are doing and and what we focus on is human interest narrative journalism and what does that mean that means we see the news through the perspective of a person rather than through the event itself um i'll give you an example to make it a little bit more real um when you know there's a counteroffensive underway right now and a lot of that fighting is happening in a place called orikhiv it's a, it's in, in southern ukraine um it's maybe you know, 65 kilometers from the major town of Zaporizhia, which some people might have heard of. Um, a lot of news outlets, and I don't want to point any fingers, the way they write about the counteroffensive is, oh, you know, this village was captured, or there was fighting over here, or, you know, Ukrainian forces advanced 1,400 meters over, uh, over the last three days or whatever. The way we try to cover the news is we think of interesting stories as, uh, as the meat and the news itself is the vegetables that we sneak into, sneak into the veg, uh, into the burger, right? Um, so rather than just start the story with, uh, with a recitation of facts, we went to a woman named Svetlana who is from Orikiv. And we talked about her career as a typist and how slowly over time, she spent 10 months there since the war started, slowly over time, um, uh, her home degraded. Because of the war, the roof caves in, uh, a, a, a missile hits her balcony. She spends 10 months screaming and shouting and ducking and hoping to survive. And, and you kind of take this journey with her. Um, first, she's cooking 
with her gas stove and then the gas pipes are destroyed. Then she uses electricity to try to prepare her food and the power supply gets cut out. First, she's using the water pipes uh, with, at her sink to get water. At the end of it, she's forced to cook her food with water from the river over, over an open fire. And at, at a certain point, it becomes just untenable for her to continue to live there. Right. In the course of learning about her story and her life, we learn a lot of things about the counteroffensive. We learn about the pets, uh, the animal, the cats and dogs that, that are left behind. And she still sneaks back into the city, which 80% of her city is uh, all of the buildings in her city are damaged or destroyed. She still sneaks back into the city to feed the cats and dogs that are left over there from, from evacuees who haven't come back. Um, but that's the sort of methodology we try to use in order to convey the news. You learn all about the counteroffensive, which is happening in a number of directions, including from the town that she's from, but is incidental almost to the human story that I, I hope would be interesting to read, whether it was set in Ukraine or not. The the meat and vegetable analogy really lands for me. I read about uh, I read about nuclear issues a lot, um, which is something that just shuts a lot of people's brains down. Um, and you have to you have to figure out a way to inject humanity and bring the characters forward in these kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you? It, it strikes me as I was reading your stuff. It really strikes me that like the humanity gets lost in a lot of the reporting on war. Um, a lot of times things are, this kind of stuff is stripped out. You've worked for a lot of major publications. Um, I've worked for a lot of major publications. I don't think it's that the, the editors sit and tell you to take that stuff out. There's just this tendency towards more bland reporting for some reason. Why do you think that is? Um, I'm not sure. I think it's tradition. I think that there's a kind of voice of God tradition in a lot of um, major news outlets, that they want to appear above the fray, uh, that there's a version of objectivity that requires the recitation of facts. But I think that leads, that doesn't really lend itself to a deeper understanding of, you know, the, the humanity um, and the people, which motivate me. Um, you know, there's a lot more of a tradition in this in magazines, right? For example, uh, you think about long form reporting in the New Yorker or long form reporting at the Atlantic. Um, magazines have traditionally been the home for this sort of thing. But then again, they don't, they don't publish. They, they, they take a long period of time to publish. We push out two to three human oriented, human interest stories a week pegged to the news. So we're fast and we're human interest oriented in a way that mixes the news and that long form magazine feature writing in a way that I think that not a lot of folks are doing. You talked about, you know, nuclear, uh, uh, nuclear issues and reporting, right? So when we were trying to uh, report about the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, what we did was we profiled a nuclear engineer who was working in the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, who was in the control room I love while story, the Russians the occupied the, them. This is an incredible story. And he escapes and he escapes from uh, from Russian occupation, almost accidentally, uh, on one of his many, many tries to get into Ukrainian territory. And he talks about the dangers of, and, and, and not only that, we, we go to the, uh, we go to a nuclear issues museum, a Chernobyl museum in Kiev. We go through all the exhibits talking about nuclear energy. We talk about nuclear safety and all the dangers 
uh, that, that could occur if during this war there is some sort of nuclear crisis. And again, you know, so that's our, that's the method that we use to, 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 to cover and write about the news. Can you tell me a little bit more about this Chernobyl museum? I believe you said it was the scariest, uh, one of the scariest <laughs> museums you've ever visited, right? It is the scariest museum I've ever visited in my life. Like I've been to the Hiroshima uh, museum in, in Japan and they're very focused on like, uh, nuclear non-proliferation and they're focused on peace and they're focused on reconciliation and, and like, let's make sure this never happens again. The Chernobyl Museum in Kiev is much more about scaring the pants off you <laughs> into impress, you know, there's no, there's no peace and reconciliation there. And I guess it's because of the, the differing nature of the, uh, of the, of the nuclear incidents. But, um, Chernobyl is, this very dark and spooky place where they have all these models dressed in, um, dressed in, uh, in, in protective gear, the same sorts of protective gear, uh, that people who went in, like first responders after the Chernobyl incident would wear. Um, they had a mock-up of the nuclear reactor, um, uh, in Chernobyl and everything is in black and white from the photos to the prints to, um, it's a very dark, spooky place. And the whole idea, I think, is to press upon the visitor, the terrible human effects that happened, the, the sickness and the death and the long-term implications of it. Um, and, I think to scare children who are visiting into taking, uh, into maybe later in life taking the issue very seriously. I'm not a child and I was pretty scared about it. In fact, right after, right after, uh, we started ordering uh, potassium iodine and, uh, and steeper uh, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, uh, uh, protective gear. Cause I was like, well, you know, I am scared straight here. I need. I need to be prepared if there is an incident because let's just be honest, the nuclear issue, right? I mean, in a normal developed country, not in a period of war, um, nuclear power is relatively safe. Yeah. But in a power, in a, in a situation where the power goes out all the time, as has happened multiple times at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant or where the water level, uh, that, that, that the water reservoirs, which, uh, which feed into the nuclear reactor and are necessary for nuclear safety, whether that water supply might be compromised uh, as it has been due to the, uh, due to the breach of the Kovka dam on the Dnipro river, all of these things, you know, we're adding up, we're taking away the layers of protection that are necessary for the functioning of nuclear safety. And it raises, it raises the chance over and over with each cascading problem raises the chance for some terrible nuclear disaster from which we cannot escape. The, the, the way that story is written is very fascinating to me because the, the, you know, there's this old, that old writing maxim show don't tell. Um, traditionally when you're telling a story about what, what bad things can happen with that power plant, uh, you just tell the audience, right? This goes wrong. There could be a disaster would look similar to something like this. Um, there's something about going into, I don't know how bad that noise is. Uh, there's something, there's something about going into a museum for the last disaster that was in the area. That's very affecting. 
Uh, and I thought that was very extremely well done. Um, Thank you. you. Talk a little I bit mean, more I think about the point of our kind of yeah. I, I think our kind of um, our kind of reporting really uh, tries to accent the immersive experience. You know, another example I have is of a U.S. Uh, a former U.S. soldier who is now fighting for Ukraine, and he's fighting in Bakhmut just days before Bakhmut falls, and he gives us point of view kind of head cam footage. So it's like you're in Bakhmut and he's running around the city. You see the destruction and the fighting and the fear. And it's kind of our goal to do that kind of reporting, to make you feel like you're actually there. I want to stay in the the nuclear power plant. Just one more, one more moment. Sure. Um, tell me about Alexander's experience when the IAEA visits yeah. So, I mean, one of the questions I asked him was, do you think the IAEA has been effective in preventing a nuclear catastrophe? And he gives us this story that shows how the Russian military and the Russian occupation authorities manipulate the IAEA to, to think that, oh, the Ukrainians are attacking the plant, the nuclear plant. And he says he saw with his own eyes um Russian soldiers running around from crater to crater with uh, with a with a with a used or a spent missile, like just the hulk of the spent missile, trying to plant it in such a way that when the IAEA delegation arrived, they could say, "Oh, well, the Ukrainians fired this at us, and look at how they're deeply worsening the situation." Now, in kind of a comedy of errors. Um, the Russians accidentally placed it in a direction that indicated it, it was pointing from the Russian front lines rather than the Ukrainian front lines. But it was just kind of, it was kind of one of those anecdotes um, that that show how the information war is happening in Ukraine, um, as well as the actual war is happening in Ukraine. What do you make of the information war? By the way. We there was all of this, uh, you know, uh, a fury and noise in the six years leading up to this escalation of the war that happens in February, um, especially in the West. Uh, very frightened of Russia's ability to manage the information space. Uh, very kind of building it up. There's all the stuff with Donald Trump, right? And I, I, mm-hmm. to my mind, in the aftermath of this uh, escalated invasion in February, that narrative kind of falls apart a little bit. Um, it doesn't seem like Russia is as good as, at managing the information space as we perhaps thought they were uh, when they encounter, like, you know, a real war and a very resistant people. And again, I'm looking, f- I'm very much like rooted in the eastern coast of America. I'm looking at it from that perspective. Um, yeah. What do you see from where you are? I think the real war really undercut their information war objectives, right? I mean, it's really hard to argue to the West or to Ukrainians that they're some sort of liberators when every day we see apartments being hit, we see civilians dying, we see very clear evidence of Russian war crimes, looting, killings of unarmed individuals. Um, and all the, all other sorts of terrible atrocities. In fact, the person, one of the people we're going to be, um, profiling soon on 
counteroffensive.news, this is an exclusive for your podcast, <laughs> is someone who is, uh, who has kind of lost her mother to, uh, Russian propaganda. And as I was talking to her, I kind of, I feel like a lot of Americans might be able to relate to the story. Um, she, she talked about how her mother became obsessively, became an obsessive watcher of television, Russian television, and slowly began to live in this alternate reality that bore no relation to the reality that she lived. Um, that her mother, who had grown up in Ukraine but now lives in Russia, um, almost exclusively gets her news from television. And that when the war started, uh, she had a conversation with her mother and her mother was like, uh, was talking about how there were, you know, Ukraine was filled with Nazis and, uh, and Zelensky, uh, controlled, you know, Zelensky was responsible for the war and that Russia was rightfully coming to liberate, uh, and denazify Ukraine. And, you know, here's this woman who has, who, uh, was living in Kharkiv, whose own apartment had been bombed and destroyed and, and, and she was forced to flee to Kiev. Um, here's this woman looking at us and saying, I've never met a Nazi my entire life. I, I'm not, they're not, she's not living in a reality that resembles my life. Um, and, and it caused, as you can imagine, a huge, huge divide between the two of them. Um, but that's where I see the information war at in, in a kind of very personal anecdote, which is that among a certain segment, it's extremely effective. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that, um, I think that especially among those who, who watch, for example, Russian language television, um, it, it, it's, it's kind of taken over the brains of, uh, certain folks in, um, in Eastern Ukraine or in Russia itself. And there are, there, it, it is not, I'm trying to think ahead of phrase this question. Um, since we're talking about this, can we also talk about the use of fascist imagery on, uh, by some soldiers in Ukraine and also, you know, a fascist militia with loose connections to Kiev is my understanding, um, you know, taking over a border town in Russia, right? These are, these are people that do look, they, you know, they, they, they look like there's some avowed Nazis in that group, right? You're referring to the, to the Russians who have been somewhat aligned with the government in Ukraine yes. who are doing these cross border raids into Russia right. and causing a lot of trouble for the authorities in Belgorod. Correct. Yeah. I, I spoke to one Ukrainian official today who said, tactically, uh, it was uh, a good decision, but strategically, uh, a very unwise decision, uh, at least from the standpoint of Ukrainian interests, because Ukraine knows that it depends on the West and it depends on the continued support of uh, Americans and the Brits and Canadians and other elements of the European Union, and it cannot be associated with far-right groups. Um, so there's a real vibrant and uh, debate and, and controversy here, uh, even amongst Ukrainians, about 
should we be aligned with these folks? Does it make sense for us? I mean, I think a lot of Ukrainians cheered the outcome, but not the process, right? That they're, they're very happy for Russians to be making trouble for other Russians and to, let's say, create another front in the war and to distract Russia, the Russian military from, uh, Areas of Ukraine where the Russian military is, is, is currently occupied. But I think there's a real unease about the sort of wartime alignment that may not be in long, in Ukraine's long-term strategic interests. I think the point that they are, uh, Russians that went back into Russia is a good one. Um, a lot of those guys in their, like music festival Nazis as well. I don't know if you know that if you know that one of them is an, a music festival organizer who's famous for like organizing uh, like a, a neo-Nazi black metal festival every year. Anyway, um, what is the mood in Kiev right now? How how is the sense that the counter how is the counteroffensive perceived to be going? I know it's kind of early days and things change almost by the hour, yeah. right? Yeah, well, we, we, we'll get these messages and we'll get these updates and we'll get these, uh, the news stories about one village that, no, like this tiny village has been, has been, uh, taken over by the Ukrainians and the Russians are falling back. But it, we're talking 25, 50, 100, 300 meters at a time, right? Um, that the fighting is happening at this grueling and terrible pace. And causing enormous casualties on both sides. The thing that I try to convey about the situation in Ukraine is that it's kind of, it's bizarre. It's not a situation, uh, like you would see, for example, in Sudan. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's, uh, there's the front lines and then there's danger everywhere throughout the country. But then there's also, um, a McDonald's that's open. You know, there's this big, controversy this week or actually not this week but in the last few weeks when the head of a, of a major ukrainian economics uh university posted this very vibrant video this video of a very vibrant mcdonald's on a friday night and opponents of aid to ukraine seized on this video of young people ordering big macs and mcnuggets to say the war isn't real and why are we giving so much money to Ukraine or supplies, humanitarian aid or military equipment to Ukraine. It doesn't look like the war is really happening out there. The, the reality is that living in Kyiv is this kind of constant low level stress, right? It's not always acutely dangerous. There are no tanks, uh, there, uh, and there's not very often gunfire. Um, but most nights in, in May, there were attacks here at three o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning. Um, it was a very kind of high intensity, high tempo period of military, Russian military operations against Ukraine. And so, yes, there are people sitting out on patios enjoying a, a, a nice coffee or having a beer. But then everyone heads home at around curfew, which is midnight here in Kiev and then they brace for what time am I going to be woken up in the middle of the night that I have to run to a, uh, to an air raid shelter or, uh, get woken up by explosions. 
Um, that's the sort of dichotomy that it's, I, I find it like hard to explain to folks who have not not been here that you could see these nice things happening and somehow there's some normalcy going on. But at the same point, there's obvious signs of violence and war. Yeah, I don't think people in America specifically, because we've never had anything like this on the, on the home front, right? Don't understand that life continues during wartime, that people still go to their job. You still have to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You still have to take care of your home and your family. Um, it's just that you are doing that with the added stress of a war going on around you, right? And it's not at a high-level intensity 100% of the time, right? Uh, well, things would have been very different if we were speaking here a, a year and change ago, right? Mm-hmm. When the siege of Kiev was happening, when the city was empty, uh, when there were Russian troops and armored vehicles and tanks just in the suburbs. And this was a reality not that long ago, and everyone remembers it. When this was a very, very dangerous city, to be in and the city was on the front lines. Nowadays, Kiev is not within, you know, shelling distance or mortar distance. Um, uh, it's still within the distance of missiles and Shahid drones. Um, but there's, but they've had well over a year to try to adjust, uh, to try to adjust the power infrastructure so that, I mean, there were large portions of the city that didn't have power in the winter. When Russia attacked uh, the power infrastructure to, to to make things harder here for the remaining civilian population, um, but now that power level is back. Um, there was enormous disruption to businesses when uh, when millions of Ukrainians left the country as refugees, but a, a large number of them have decided to return. Um, there was enormous disruption, obviously, to the economy when uh, at the beginning of the war. All commercial flights into the country overnight stopped, but now they found ways to use trucks to get goods into Kiev, and so they, they've been able to adapt in, in in incredible ways. And that kind of uh, puts a bandaid paper papers over um, the reality of war in some ways. But of course, you still hear the explosions in the air sirens at night. You're listening to Angry Planet. We'll be right back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And we're back with more of the best show of its kind on the internet. What draws people to Ukraine? Uh, Two-part question. You've got a great profile of the foreign fighters that come. Opens with the the French gentleman with the Tokyo Ghoul pseudonym. Um, but also, I'm wondering what draws people like you. What draws the reporters? Because we've we've interviewed more than one reporter on this show. That uh, you, you're you're making the face like, of course, this is a war zone. Like, of course, people reporters are going to come. But we've interviewed more than one reporter on the show that have traditional like combat experience or war correspondence experience go to Ukraine and they're supposed to be there for like a week or two weeks. And then they stay. I've known a couple people that have moved and have married and are like building lives there as well as doing the reporting. Um, and that's not a phenomenon that I've seen in other war zones. So what do you think is going on? The face I made wasn't one of skepticism to your question. I think it was one of, I'm still trying to figure that out myself. It was one of bewilderment more than of skepticism. And um, I don't know. I've had some hard times in Ukraine. You know, I've, I, I, I have, there have been periods. Last fall, I swore to myself I'd never come back here. And then I moved here and started a company based on the idea of living and reporting from here. The only thing I could say is that when it comes to the sort of journalism I really love the most, which is this narrative style of journalism, this human interest style of journalism, you, there are no higher stakes than here. And that, um, and that the stories that you can tell and that I'm lucky enough to convey to some folks, um, they're, they, they have, it feels like you're you're telling important stories. Not that I was. I spent the, most of the last fifteen years in Washington D.C. telling all sorts of stories about politics and doing investigative work um, for for outlets like NPR and the Daily Beast and Politico, um, and th- those are important too. Um, but the emotional impact of these stories that I've told over the last year and change in Ukraine, um, it tugs at me. And when I went back to the States and I decided I wasn't going to come back here, it kept tugging at me and it kept pulling me and it kept whispering at me until the point at which, well, here I am in an apartment and keep talking to you. <laughs> um, but like there's a, there's an upside and there's a downside the, the, you know, like the, the downside is there's obviously a long-term emotional impact on everyone here. The least of which is is on the reporters, but the, but like the way I I've described it is that when I'm talking to people, it's like I have this cup, and I'm walking from source to source, from 
interview subject to interview subject. And every person that I talk to has one of the saddest stories ever, has had one of the worst days of their life recently. And then they pour a little bit of their sadness into the cup with every story they tell. And you, as the conveyor of that information, you can't help but be affected by that, right? And so that's, that's the downside of it all that, that, um, that you're doing hard work worth doing, but, um, but you're also trying to manage and, 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 uh, deal with all this grief that's being poured into your cup long term. And how are you managing that grief? I'm trying to be proactive about, about dealing with it. So like, I'm very much, you know, I'm a, as you mentioned, I'm a former U S army medic. And I think among people there's become over the last 20, 25 years, particularly in the American experience, particularly among soldiers in the U S military, my observation, not, not, you know, statistical fact, but my observation is that there's been so many suicides. There have been so many mental health issues as a result of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that so many people have lost so many other people, so many friends and family members, that there's more openness and transparency about mental health among the formerly too macho. Uh, and that the best way to prevent these terrible things from taking hold in your soul is to be open about it, to talk to your friends about it, to, to create a network where you have social support. Um, and I've been taking, I've been trying to be as proactive as possible about that and to, and to kind of nip it in the butt as well. Cause I've had some dark moments as a result of, um, as a result of the reporting here and you need to take breaks. You need to, uh, you need to seek therapy. You need to have a, have a, a kind and supportive network of friends and, and colleagues around you. And, but mostly you need to be open, um, open to trying to find ways to express the pain you're feeling, for example, or the sadness you're feeling, for example, so that it doesn't press and become something more difficult to handle. So it doesn't fester. So it doesn't fester and then express itself in terribly negative ways. You know, another thing also, uh, when I, when I started counteroffensive.news, I, uh, reached out to a number of former war correspondents, people like Chris Hedges, people like, uh, Sebastian Younger and Kim Dozier. And I, I started noticing this trend among the people I was talking to because I was asking them for advice. And what I found, I, um, not, not every single one of them, but what I found is a lot of them don't drink alcohol. That they found that the, the compounding impacts of alcohol to dramatically worsen their mental state after a period of, uh, of mental trauma. Um, you know, Sebastian Younger told me, you know, I've had many a great drink in my life and I, you know, I'd be worse off if I had never drank any alcohol, but I don't drink, I haven't touched it in years because I, because I know the long-term effects of it. And it made me really, I'm not a teetotaler myself, but, um, uh, but it made me rethink my relationship with alcohol and particularly its use as, uh, as a kind of stress reliever. You know, at the end of the week on a Friday night, you'd had a week, you had, you know, 
terrible time. And you think, oh, I'm entitled to a few beers to just let off some steam. And from my conversations with, you know, um, with both doctors who specialize in PTSD and, 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 uh, and war correspondents is that that's not a wise move. A lot of people will say, Hey, if you're watching the game and you want to hang out with some friends, you have a couple beers, it's no problem. But once you start using it as a medication to manage your stress, you're going down this pathway, um, where there's nothing but darkness and, uh, that, that you're kind of delaying and amplifying actually your anxiety and sadness, but you're just, you're punting it to tomorrow where it will compound and where it will make things more difficult to you. I, I'm, I'm not here, by the way, to, you know, pass judgment on anyone who, who drinks or chooses to drink or anything like that. Um, I'm just kind of conveying my new strategy as it relates to alcohol. In Washington, D.C., you can't go anywhere. You can't meet anyone, as you know. You can't meet anyone without drinking alcohol. It's just unheard of. Um, and so it's taken a real kind of shift in my approach and my mindset uh, to even step back from that a little bit and come down to like, hey, I'm, you know, I'll drink, I'm a two-drink person now. I've always said that the, the, that the biggest challenge in life is the delineation between your third drink and your fourth drink, <laughs> <laughs> because four equals nine, actually. Right. And if you can, if you can stop at three, if you can stop at three, um, uh, you, and you can exert the the will necessary to stop at three, you'll be okay. But if you cross the line into four, uh, you're gonna you're 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 likely to lose all control, and it's gonna be a bad morning for you. How does um, what, just out of curiosity, what is the alcohol culture like in Kiev? Is it like DC where you need to lubricate? I've met a lot of people. Who... Sorry, go ahead. No, it's really not. I mean, there's there's no no there's it, it's really not. Um, it's not really like that at all. And I, in fact, I've been surprised by how many people just don't drink here. Um, I haven't really explored why, um, but. I find actually that I spend more time getting coffees with people than in DC, you know, which the the common thing is to get drinks with people. Um, And at at least, you know, putting my reporter hat on from a source perspective, I get a lot more coffees here and a a lot fewer drinks. Um, It, it, I still drink with friends and I'd still have, you know, drinks from time to time and perhaps a little bit more than I should. But, um, but it hasn't, it's not central to your professional life here like it is in Washington, D.C. What are you working on for this week? What are, what's coming to the, what's coming to counteroffensive.news? Um, I, I gave you one exclusive already, Matthew. You, you're trying to, you're trying yes. to, as a, as a good reporter, you're trying to dig deeper. Um, well, I'm, I'm doing a number of stories. Uh, uh, we're, we're profiling this Ukrainian ATV company called Sherp. And basically, we, 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 um, uh, th- there's a really cool kind of massive ATV that can be both driven, can be used as a drone. It can be used as a remote control thing, uh, which is right now being used on the front lines of humanitarian relief and in sort of battlefield evacuation. You can just put someone in this vehicle set its location and it can drive through anything. It can drive on land. It can drive on water. <laughs> it can go over mountains. It can go, uh, it can go anywhere. 
And so we did a test drive of this amazing Ukrainian-made ATV called the Sherp. Um, and we're, we're writing about what's it like to have a business in Ukraine during the war. A business, by the way, which could easily be targeted by the Russians for destruction, right? Because the Russians have destroyed a lot of um, factory warehouse-type buildings over the course of last year. Um, and so that's one thing. I'm working on a number of stories on things like people who are rescuing animals and putting them up for adoption because of the flooding in Kherson. Uh, we're doing stories about the changing nature of comedy in Ukraine. The things that were funny before the war that aren't funny anymore and the things that weren't funny before but are funny now. Um, that's a story we're working on. We're profiling a really, like, what I think is the most important war, or the most important battle to take place during this war. We're doing stories on everything. You know, I mean, we're doing stories on not just the battlefield and soldiers, but also about Ukrainian culture and cuisine and language, and history, um, and trying to wrap that in the war to, to, to tell a different kind of story and tell us, tell a story that will cut through this whole phenomenon of quote unquote Ukraine fatigue, right? Yeah. Like I want to tell stories that would be interesting to read, whether they happen in Ukraine or not. But the fact is that they are happening in Ukraine and that gives it a little edge. Um, and, and, and that's kind of my philosophy. And I, I hope to bring more stories like that to, to counteroffensive.news. Sir, thank you so much for coming on to Angry Planet and walking us through this. The Substack <laughs> Thank you so much is, for having me. Is counteroffensive.news. It is a really incredible place to get stories from the war. Uh, and I encourage everyone to go and sign up. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Angry Planet. The show is produced with love by Matthew Galt and Jason Fields, with the assistance of Kevin O'Dell. This is the place where we ask you for money. If you subscribe to us on substack.angryplanet.com, it means the world to us. The show, which we've been doing for more than seven years now, means the world to us, and we hope it means a lot to you. We're incredibly grateful to our subscribers. Please feel free to ask us questions, suggest show ideas, or just say hi. $9 a month may sound like a big ask, but it helps us to do the show on top of everything else that we do. We'd love to make Angry Planet a full-time gig and bring you a lot more content. If we get enough subscriptions, that's exactly what we'll do. But even if you don't subscribe... We're grateful that you listen. Many of you have been listening since the beginning, and seriously, that makes it worth doing the show. Thank you for listening, and look for another episode next week. Stay safe. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.